what's special about our cooking is that, you know, we we don't have stories about us foraging with like our grandmothers, and I think that that's what the the food is, you know, and that, that I think that's what our the whole thing is about relationships and about meeting other people and how those people influence you and how you become your own person by all the things that surround you, and I think that's a lot of what the restaurants are about. You're listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, we have Jeremiah Stone and Fabian Van Osk, the chefs of a trio of New York City restaurants, Contra Wild Air and Una Pizza Napolitana, as well as the authors of a new book, A Various Serious Cookbook. Also on the show, later on, we have cookbook author and chef Sohee Kim discussing her new cookbook, Korean Home Cooking. But first, Matt, what was it like catching up with Fabian and Jeremiah, and what are they up to? Oh, man, these guys, they're like building an empire down in the Lower East Side, and it's just cool to talk about these three restaurants that are within walking distance and how different they are and really just like their partnership in these three restaurants and how that all works. It's pretty remarkable. And their cookbook is a little bit unconventional, right? It's like a little bit informal. It's fun. It feels a little bit like a restaurant cookbook, but it has a little bit of spirit to it. Yeah, it's like, you know, directors get final cut in, like, films. Well, they pretty much got final cut in this cookbook. It's a really difficult cookbook for sure. It's not for everyone. There is – it's in metric and not in, in, in English measurement, so really has um, a, a real chef quality to it. That all said, it's a really cool book to page through, maybe cook from, and it really gives the story of how they think about food, which is kind of amazing. Here's Matt talking to Fabian and Jeremiah. Jeremiah Stone and Fabian Van Osk, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. I love having you guys here. I'm huge fans. Uh, you own Contra, Wild Air, and Una Pizza Napolitana, the newest incarnation of that restaurant. And you're also the authors of a very serious cookbook. We are. It's a very, it's a very serious cookbook. I mean, it really is. I want to ask you about the book. But first, let's talk about the last time I saw you two in, the, in a room. It was at Una Pizza, and um, I was having an amazing meal. I loved it. I had plenty of things to tweet about. And I think, Jeremiah, you came up to me and said, Pete Wells is here. <laughs> and you, yes. bo- and you was both yeah. you both were, like, very chill. I was, like, super impressed by that. So what was happening then when I saw you? Uh, I think, you know, I mean, for us, we've this is, what, our third time being reviewed. It's like, you know, we... Every day, no matter who's there, we we try and and give it our best and and create the, you know, the closest thing to what we we think is, uh, you know, a welcoming restaurant. And I guess, you know, you, you can't ch- you can't do anything different. You can't change someone's opinion. So we just we put it out there, and then you know, it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, completely. But I it was just like you were you were pretty you were back by the pizza oven a lot. I think you were running Expo or doing something doing working yeah. there. What was it think, going through your head? I don't know. I think I'm just very good at uh I'm just very good at hiding my emotions, but probably it was freaked out inside. <laughs> but yeah, like you said, I think it's just it's the ninth time that we've seen him in a restaurant of ours, so it was just like Yeah. Um how's it going? How's pizza how's selling pizza right now and how's how's it how's the restaurant going? Pizza's good. Um, we've we just got back from a little week long uh, break and came up with some you know good direction and ideas of 
you know, we usually take summer to see what's going on and and what we can improve and what and what direction we want to go for the next year, essentially. And so that's what we did. We had some some good meetings, and we're you know always evolving. Yeah. All the restaurants are always kind of going through this micro evolution. So that's that's it. that's the case for the pizza as well. And I think it's uh, it's coming out great. And yeah, you know, we're, you're packed. I assume. I mean, you're really like you're quite busy. Yeah, I mean, it's been pretty busy. Um, you know, summer is always up and down sure. in New York, um, but it's been it's been nice because a lot of people want to, you know, show up and, and support because they they've been to the other um, versions of of Una. So it's nice to have a lot of first timers in. You guys met through Dave Arnold, right? He was working, or tell me that story because and yeah. there was like a cryovac machine involved in this. In this <laughs> yeah, there's always a cryovac machine involved. Yeah, yeah true. Well, or, or liquid nitrogen, actually. Probably more. <laughs> right. I don't think he introduced that. Why? When I was reading, I I was like, I don't know if he introduced us, but he was definitely like the the catalyst of how we came together. Um, you guys, but you, uh, you in the book, you write about how you really crystallized your relationship. When you were both working overseas, right, Jeremiah, you were in Paris, yeah, and Paris. and Fab, you were in at Noma, yeah, and you were meeting online, right? You were chatting after service. I think this is a cool story. Tell me about that one. Yeah, we were in a chat room, <laughs> <laughs> like you boys. Like this is a chat room, right? AOL style. What were you talking about in the chat room? Were you like discussing what you'd gone through? Uh, let's let's roll with the chat. Let's roll, roll with the chat. Let's roll with it. Yeah, I mean, it was just very. Um, I think it was just very hard times for both of us, just uh, being by ourselves in a, in a completely different city. And then I think both of our circumstances were very extreme. Um, like I was there when, when they had just uh, became number one. Mm-hmm. So it was like, I mean, I, I think to this day, it is like the most work I've ever done in like a single day. And I think Jeremiah had just taken a, a position as a sous chef at this place called Reno at the time. And it was just like, you know, the both of us, like at the end of the night, we're like, you know, it's just lunch like, I don't and know. Yeah, it was like pretty much can, yeah. nine in the morning till one in the morning. and Like when they tell you that in Europe they work less, they definitely didn't work at these places. Not these two because, places. No. And, yeah. Uh, I didn't work in restaurants for like two years and and uh, it was just kind of like getting back into it. and um, And also I think just, you know, not speaking the language and, you know that was like my my struggle and kind you were of... very honest about it in the writing i love that i mean the story is really good and you're talking about reno and how his italian guy was doing this really cool food right and yeah. you, you learned a lot from him you wanted to probably work at a french restaurant but you ended up working with this italian guy exactly yeah so i had i was doing uh i was working with this guy who um was kind of he worked for michel bra and and um for terry marks and he uh was just doing private events so Got you know, got linked up with him, and then that job at Reno kind of opened up, and uh, and you know he's he's Italian, but he'd been working there for a long time, and I was like, I don't really want to work in an Italian restaurant. In my mind, when I had heard it was there was an Italian restaurant, I was thinking like it was going to be like I was going to show up, and there and it was like you know like an Italian restaurant that we have here, like a pasta station. Yeah, I was like <laughs> you know, and we get there, and he was doing very French food um, with just like his touches, and uh, we got on really well. And his, his sous chef had just left, and um, you know I ended up uh, staying there for a while, just really learning a lot. Also, just from my about myself and 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 being there, and we you know was um, it was interesting because it was like some of the most French food that I had had. But you know, imagine coming from a Roman chef, and 
but it was it was more French than anything in the states that I could even that that a French chef had ever prepared because it had this it was in the moment you know. It's a cool thing about food and restaurant cooking is like you, your passport doesn't really really dictate right like who you ha- are in the kitchen right. Yeah, I think it's the you know the culture was there the 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 experience the surroundings the product so it was you know I feel like I forget that it was not this classic you know French bistro was we were doing a lot of things that um, were different and fun but it, it had the soul and heart of a place you know that truly a french restaurant yeah let's fast forward um a bit to october 2nd 2013 you both opened contra on the lower east side and you write very honestly about the style of the food was quite disjointed and you had you had often had battles and you were struggling to to find your way of course contra would be reviewed in new york times quite favorably and it would lead to your success so the story is happy at contra but tell me about the not happy part because I think it's important to talk about your collaboration and the struggle between styles. Yeah, I mean, I think it was just uh, when we opened, I think the two of us, we were trying to find ourselves individually, like what we were as chefs, whatever you want to call it. And then, like, the, I think the what we missed in, in those first months were, like, the conversation of who we were as a team and not just as individuals. And I think that that first year, even though I think we we were always, you know, giving a book, a good product, we weren't telling like necessarily a good story, like all together. And I think it was just after the initial reviews and like just, you know, seeing how the summer, you know, our first summer was kind of slow. So we had like a good time to actually figure out and, you know, we were like, what do you, what do we want to do with this restaurant? Like he said, we always trying to evolve and, and like for us, that was sort of like what the next episode was like how do we link these two things together and I think that was just from you know like honestly I think we both went through a phase when we actually you know for me it was very difficult like I was every time I made a plate I looked at it and I saw something that someone else was making and it's just a reflection of I think you're just doing what you know and then you get to that point where you start feeling comfortable and then you start looking inwards and you start doing things that just feel natural and then that's when you start doing something that feels very very like, original doing. and creative yeah when you say other people are doing it how do you know they're doing it is it through simply through our social media and the way that it flows or are you is it because you're dining out well i think yeah a big part of of it was like we always you know we always want to go out to eat and we are, we're always interested in what other people are doing and it's just sort of like you just look at a plate and you make it and like visually, it might look like someone else's, but other than that, I think just the idea doesn't feel natural. Because you try it, and then it just you just feel like it's not you. You know, you just like there's something just about it that you just know that it's it's not you. It's coming from somewhere else. It's not, and and it's not like true creativity. It's just like an inspiration, being inspired by someone else. And I think we both came to that point where we we realized we start we had to start doing things in our own way and like. You know, doing things. So we we started instead of like looking outwards and like what we've done before and like just consider like our own opinions. That's when we started talking about like dishes and yeah. you know we would make something and then I would get him to try it or it was like the other way around or we would actually sit and talk about ideas. You know, he would come to me and he like you, you know I really like the sauce you're making for this dessert. How can we do it for a savory dish? Or like I was like oh, 
you know, you're using uh, peaches right now. Like, what if we use peaches in a dessert like later on? Is that how you're communicating? Is this just meetings and you're you're just talking like face to face? Are you sending each other texts and notes when you're in separate locations? Yeah, a little bit of both. Yeah, I mean, like I'm always like thinking about different dish ideas, and I'm just jotting it down. And sometimes I won't even give like a you know reference. I'll just send him a message, and I'll just be like tomato, dried squid. <laughs> you know, it's like. And, you know, I think it's just kind of getting it out there and, oh, what's that for? Oh, for maybe the third course here. Yeah, I think it's nice. You know, we kind of just throw stuff out at each other sometimes. Let's talk about this book because it is very unique and very special. And I'm I'm a fan of it, even though I've only seen the PDF, just to be honest. But we're recording this before release date. Can't wait to actually hold it. But first off, like, what the fuck? You're, like, doing metric? That's like metric weights. No, yeah. Like, well, yeah. I mean, we work. That's crazy, man. I love it. I love yeah, it so it's much. Yeah, good. Yeah, no, a good, good thing. Like this is <laughs> unprecedented, almost for yeah. even the most restauranty books. You have to usually convert. How did you win that battle with your publisher? I think there was. I think actually cause, no battle. I think because no. they're based in London. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're completely fine it's with it. Secret. No, I think having um, having Allison was a big part of it. And Allison it, Roman, that is. Yeah, yeah Allison Roman. And it was just, I think her success in her book and like her success in how she writes recipes was very well translated to the publisher when we were starting. And I think that's like one of the things we really didn't have to fight with because I think we we just told them that we wanted to make a book that even though it was chefy somewhat and like a restaurant book, we didn't want it to feel like no one could do any of those things. I think if you have the money to buy the equipment you need, you can actually make all the recipes and they're not that complicated. But then there's also some recipes that you just literally need a blender. And Yeah, you know. I'll just say this. I'm not sure I fully agree with it being like that accessible, but I don't think that's a problem because I feel this book is – it's not just chef-y. Um, it's for the most adventurous chefs because there's chefs who write recipes who don't write recipes like you guys. You guys are writing some of the most creative and coolest um, recipes around, and it obviously translates to your restaurants. But I also think this book is for anyone who has any kind of passion about restaurants because it shows how this stuff is done. And I think it really will translate well to a large audience of fans who just love going to restaurants and love the culture of of, of the restaurant. So were you was that in, like in mind when you were writing the book a little bit? I think that you know we were when we were trying to think of whether we should make it more um, you know directed to the at home cook or you know for other professional cooks and people who are a little bit more well versed in the kitchen. I think that we, our only goal was to not compromise with, you know, how we approach products and how we approach the technique. Because at the end of the day, we we don't have much going on in the kitchen. Like you know, the some people's home kitchens probably have more, you know, technical equipment than we do. So it's not a kind of book that you need a lot of, um, you know special kind of pans and utensils it's you know we what we use is what we use you know we'll figure it out um you know the book kind of talks about cooking some things very um gently and slow like half the time that doesn't even take place in the oven that takes place like you know on what we call the piano the front of the the french top or it gets you know left on a shelf for three four minutes above the 
the hot top where it's like collecting a lot of heat. So there's, you know, that's we we were trying to figure out. Well, the way we do things in a restaurant is not how you would do things in um in your home kitchen. But you know, to your point, like um, it it is you know it is approachable. Um, but yeah, when you see how we treat things, it's you don't have to plate it like that. You don't have to do all the little steps, but it's kind of like what we want to deliver to the guest. And, um, hopefully, you know, the, the payoff is like things being just a little bit more calculated. And Soigne, like that's what you guys, you guys like are super technical with your food. I mean, just looking at the, uh, Palme Dauphin dish at, uh, Wild Air, which is like my favorite dish ever. I've ordered it like 10 times, I think, which is like basically a giant latke with, uni and jalapenos on it but that's like technique right i mean don't like let's not kid ourselves like that's kind of challenging to make at home but if you do it enough yeah i mean it's it's a technique that um you know it'd be like the difference would be like maybe um if you really wanted to just make create shortcuts you're like oh just grate it through a grater or Mm -hmm. put it through uh you know a machine and you know you're like knife cuts you're doing matchsticks yeah and i think that like at the end of the day, if it does if it doesn't look perfect at home, then is it going to taste any worse? No, but I mean, there is a lot of, um, you know, the food that we do is definitely rooted in this kind of classic French mentality, and that somehow that translates sometimes into just keeping things very simple and pure, and sometimes it translates into things like you know the knife work matters because, um, you know, for for us it's you know it's just the presentation, the how things cook, make sure they cook evenly and. Um, you know, at home, I know it, it you know, you'll, you'll be happy. I can't wait to see the photos of everyone making these kind of things. And they're going to make it too. Cause you, I'm just saying like these fans of restaurants want to attempt this food or at least yeah. like look behind the, the, the curtain a little bit. I think it's just such a cool book in that way. Yeah. I think you're going to, when you make these recipes, you're going to realize that, um, it is, it's not that difficult to make it, but yes, it's difficult to get it to be how you know how it looks and how it and all the little details of what you might imagine it to be in a restaurant but you know that's the fun part about it is you know you'll be surprised how easily you'll be able to make it and it'll taste good and and you know it wasn't that much effort but um i think you'll just appreciate it you know a little bit more i like the organization of the book a lot because it's not typical first course second course third course or proteins and vegetables it's like you have a chapter called never yeah what does that mean exactly (laughs) the never chapter uh, yeah, who knows? I mean, no, it's just um, there's like things like 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 the book says. You know, we we do a lot of events and we do a lot of cash of dinners and we do a lot of things that we only do like once. And I think that what's special about our cooking is that you know we we don't have stories about us foraging with like our grandmothers or like we don't have we're not in this like rural place where we go and pick it's very light on bio it's very much in the present yeah I'd say yeah and i think that that's what the the food is you know and that i think that's what our the whole thing is about relationships and about meeting other people and how those people influence you and how you become your own person by all the things that surround you and i think that's a lot of what the restaurants are about and those dishes in the never section i think are somehow like the most important of uh like the whole thing because you can see the genesis of an idea and you can see how you know we it's like conversations with people and like those things are become a part of who you are and and what the restaurants are and you know like 
we've done a lot of guest chef dinners where we, you know, with James Lowe when we did a dinner. It's like there's a lot of dishes that we did that one time that were sort of inspired by a restaurant in London. But then a lot of those ideas became something that's very contra. So what does the never mean? In sh- I think the never – well, because we had, you know, we had wanted to avoid doing this book that had recipes that were like, you know – the famous da da da. Yeah, it's like you know <laughs> the food that we do is always changing. It's always evolving. It's it's lighthearted. Um, you know we take the job seriously and we take the sourcing the products and working with people seriously. But um, I think because of that feeling of like the menus and everything being, you know, they're so um, like nothing's timeless. So yeah, nothing. Yeah, I mean like so some sacred. Yeah, we kept the we kept the you know a couple ingredients and you know good good flavors that we really like to work with. Um, but the always ended up being stuff that, you know, kind of maybe the least seasonal of, of all three sections and stuff that you can maybe make with um, dry goods like raisins or, or dishes that are kind of favorites that like have, you know, a focus on protein sometimes ended up being, which is like the probably like the biggest section, I guess, the sometimes is the middle. And that's stuff that, you know, seasonal Asparagus comes around for a few weeks, nettles, and, and you see, like, things come and go. Um, and then the never was dishes that, um, you know, we've maybe done at a, you know, a special event. Like, I, you know, we did an event um, uh, with you at, um, at this Chinese restaurant that was really fun. And, like, yeah. that— That was the launch of Taste. That was yeah. a launch party, yeah. Yeah, and that, that dish we never did again, you know? Like, I mean, it was like a—it was in the context of that— um, that setting. So, you know, we find ourselves traveling all over the world and doing, you know, we did this, um, event one time in, um, in Rimini in Italy. And it was like, well, what's the best ingredients we can find there? And, and maybe not try and recreate that when we get back to New York, you know, because we were using like a cheese that this old lady was making in a, you know, and just bringing it to this little van outside of the market. So, you know, I think the never is sometimes, it was the never is ingredients that like you know sometimes it's hard to find maybe or um they're so seasonal like we just got one case of these wild plums and never again yeah, i love that so, yeah so it's not truly never it's just the no, rare <clears throat> and the and the special occasions and moments yeah. i saw i was trying to uh, pull out some ingredients that i i saw mentioned a few times um and i just wanted to do like a little lightning round going around um, with some ingredients and just tell me, like, why are these so dope? Like, first is blue crabs, Maryland blue crabs. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I was born and uh, raised, my, my childhood was, was crabs and uh, in Maryland, um, just outside of Washington, D.C. And we, you know, that for me is like a food, you know, one of those kind of food memories that you don't really, um, that you kind of take for granted and you don't really think of as, you know, we weren't, we didn't grow up with a lot of money. We didn't go out to eat. We didn't um, have a lot of um, interaction with very, you know, unique food, in my opinion. You know, and and but the crabs was one thing. Like, I feel like it's in your blood when you grow up around D.C. that uh, you know the difference between male and female crab, what to eat, how to open it, what's a fresh crab. You know, like even as like a seven-year-old, you can pick up a crab and you're like, ah, that one's a little light. That's not really... And it's always with Old Bay, right? Yeah, it's always with Old Bay. Even Yeah, I mean, I got in a big fight with my family the other day uh, because they're trying to be really healthy and my father's had like triple bypass open heart surgery so there was no Old Bay on any of the crabs and I just lost it. (laughs) 
I was like, I don't, this is my childhood, uh, you know. But uh, yeah, and I think that you know we uh, we use crab in the restaurant. Yeah. You know, you do, and it's not just blue crabs; it's pikachu. Yeah, it's not just it's all, it's all over, sorts yeah. of crab. I, you know, I I think if you grow up like that in that area in the Mid Atlantic, you're you're a crab person over a lobster person. So I didn't really. L- enjoy lobster i didn't appreciate lobster mm-hmm. until like more recently Later in life yeah let's talk about umeboshi i saw that quite a few yeah i mean i think the uh, umeboshi is one of those things that they're all the flavors that we're always looking for so it's like a little bitter but not too much it's sour it's salty and um i think what was we made this butter once i think that was the first thing we used it for and all oh, the rad yeah. Yeah, I mean like something that like, you know, we blended it into a butter and kind of, you know, stay like made it added some liquid to it. Um so there's like water actually water content and 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 then we put it in the fridge so it was like a like a fridge stable creamy always creamy butter and it had all this flavor in it from the umeboshi packed in already. Um and so we used that on, you know, steak. even just like putting that on top of steak and let yeah, and letting that melt and that was kind of like the first, uh, you know, fun thing that we did with that. Let's go to uni. I saw that like a few you times. A lot of uni. <laughs> Lots of uni, and, and you know, cooking with uni is is going to be challenging. But we got we went through that. Like maybe this isn't necessary to cook with. But why do you love uni so much? In your restaurants. I think it's. I mean, I don't know. Just that brininess, that that creamy, luxurious kind of. Yeah. Sort of like a seasoning of sorts. Like you're just you come up with a dish and. You know, you're you're looking for those things that are missing, and generally, when we use it, we're looking for that like brininess, salty. Yeah, like, we're so close to again. You like, know, we have the main uni, yeah. which yeah. is like such good quality that. You yeah, know. you you do mostly main over Hokkaido. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the main well, there, we uni do. spawns for a few months out of the year, so you know, I think there's kind of a time and place for all the different right. types. But um, and I think at Wilder we always have we always have it, so it's always. Like, it's always part of the conversation of somehow, like, you know, we're always talking about uni, regardless of what's going on. So <laughs> No, I don't so. think you're going to lose any fans um, over time. I think uni is here to stay. I think it's <laughs> so visually, true. it's yeah. cool. It is a seasoning. The brininess, the unctuousness, it's a, it's a cool, cool product. Yeah, it's not really trendy for us. I think we just, no, like... of course not. We really are always, like, I mean, I think we love to use seafood and... Um, you know, the quality of the uni that we get is, is something that's very controlled. You know, sometimes you might get okay muscles and great muscles. And, you know, I guess the more we pay for a product, the more control you have over it. So let me uh, hear about working with Alison Roman. I mean, you guys have. Oh, been, she's horrible. I know. She's, she's really <laughs> the worst. No, that's absolutely not true. It's funny because you worked with her years ago. This book has been in the pro- process for a while. Yeah. It's well before her book came out um, here at Clarkson Potter. Yeah. And I mean, she's exploded onto the scene. I, I, I'm sure this will probably be her first and last collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> she's too big. For, yeah. uh, she's too amazing. big for you. No, she's I mean, a legend. Yeah. But tell me, what was like working with her? I mean, she's she's pretty cool collaborator, right? Yeah, she's she's great. Um, and we've known Allison for for a long time. She's friends with a lot of friends of ours from like back in the day, like when she was a pastry chef in San Francisco. So we knew her from that. And then when we were looking for someone to write the book with us. We were um, we were doing Aspen Food and Wine, and she was there doing some sort of like Instagram campaign for American Express or something. And we just make that money, okay? <laughs> yeah, make that money. And we just we saw her there. We had lunch with her, and then we, we asked her to ride horses. We yeah. went to ride horses with her, and uh, 
Like after that, we were just like, oh, you know what? She said that she was doing a cookbook then, and I knew she had that book, uh, Lemons, before. And we just started talking about Allison and. Yeah, I mean, we knew that. I mean, Allison, she's you know, she was young and had a very, um, you know, good work ethic, and it just kind of made sense um, to work with someone that had a deep love for the kind of food that we did, but also wasn't like too much wrapped up in like the restaurant world or I think having that outside perspective because, you know, at the end of the day, like that's, you know, who would be reading it, you know, we, or who we wanted to read it. People who, um, you know, the restaurant people, I think they, they'll understand all the, the references, whether you tell them or not, you, they kind of figure it out, you know, that's, that's the life. But, um, no, it was really nice to have, to work with another person who had a, a very different kind of skill set and different perspective. Yeah. You guys are like all over the place in terms of travel and you have a lot of friends. Like who are some of your closest friends in the in the food industry, in the restaurant industry? I think a, uh, a lot of the people come up in, in the book and the, the Anyone stories. Anyone named James. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we talk about uh, James Henry, uh, James Lowe. James Scheibaut. James Scheibaut, yeah. uh, Christian Bauman, Johnny Tam, uh, you know, Christian Puglisi. It's just, it's sort of just people who we've always uh been like they've always been around like somehow and you know we've no we've known all those guys since they were working at another place and we all met when we were talking about our restaurants and like sort of our aspirations yeah. and our dreams and they just sort of like throughout the years they just started opening their restaurants we opened ours like James Lowe opened Contra the, I think the same month sorry he opened Lyles <laughs> he opened Lyles the wish. same month we uh we did and you know it's just sort of it's been like an evolution that we've all taken together. Um, so they're just, they're very close to us. And yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, that's been a big part of, um, you know, the, the reason why we can keep the restaurants going is, um, you know, all the time people, you know, like from a very little, um, point people show up and they say, Oh yeah, I'm a friend of James Henry. He sent me, you know, or, you know, we send people to, to Lyle's all the time, but I think also just, being able to talk to our friends, even if they're in a completely different market, you know, just um, our, our troubles with, uh, you know, staffing or, or understanding, you know, food costs or, you know, we're always trading stories, you know, people like Ignacio, uh, Stella and, um, you know, like Dan Eddy, who was at Rebel, like these are our friends that, you know, we get together and we kind of trade stories and, and it helps to kind of be able to understand better your craft and your job. You guys are really embedded on the Lower East Side. You got your three restaurants are there. Um, I mean, are you are you just really happy with that location? Um, do you wanna do you wanna move out from there, or, or what's? Like, well, I live down there, so I don't want to really walk yeah. too much further. Uh, I don't. We. I mean, we we looked all over uh, originally. I mean, I think we really focused in on the Lower East Side and like that Chinatown area for Contra. And then once we found that, I think we felt at home and. Um, you know, within 15 blocks, I guess we would look for another location for, for a while there. And right next door happened to really make the most sense. It opened up. And then the same thing with Una, we looked for different spots. And I think that, um, I mean, we know that area well, and we run back and forth and, you know, try to cover all grounds. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and that, that makes it a lot easier. But I think like, 
you know, East Village is great. It's a lot. It's very saturated. A lot of restaurants. West Village is maybe a little bit, you know, different clientele for us. And then, um, you know, Chinatown is is actually quite expensive. And um, you know, we actually were gonna we were gonna take the um, we considered the Mission Chinese space. Oh wow! Yeah, the 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 current space that yeah. we looked at that years ago. Um, and I they thought didn't have much luck there before Mission hit. Yeah, I mean, well, when yeah, I think we wouldn't have lasted down there because not enough people knew who we were at the time, and uh, it's pretty, you know, it was a it was a beautiful space, but uh, I think, you know, Contra we looked at like three times, and then um, it was just like Christmas. It was right before Christmas, and I think Fabian said, you know, I know we, you know, you, you know, you already saw that space, but like we just looked at it again, and you know, they peeled off some more of the walls, and maybe we should think about this this spot so it's really smart last question we always ask our guests you know you've just released this book but what would be the dream second book follow-up to this current book pop-up pop-up book oh yeah <laughs> let's tell me about that that's cool <laughs> the only book. i like the idea let's go with it i don't know i mean i think like yeah. you know we I've been doing the same about... book just years down the road and seeing the evolution of it because mm. I think, you know, like for us doing this book, we looked at when we opened and we saw how we're like, it's very hard to talk about you when you're not that person anymore. And even more when you know that the book is coming out. I mean, we started working on the book two years ago and like it's coming out now and we're not the the people that we even were two years ago and the food that we make is not the food that we we used to make so I think you know it would be for me it would be interesting to just do the same thing but do it again and see what the perspective is then and I think what what I find interesting about this book and what you said is that I think that what's interesting for people out there is that it is about a restaurant and it's the story of of how restaurants come to be and what they can become and where do they go from when they start and I think the evolution and just seeing what inspires a place, uh, it's fascinating to me. I mean, that's what I love about restaurants, truly. I think for me, maybe, um, you know, I thought it'd be, it'd be interesting to tackle a book that is very, it's a lot less recipe focused and more about flavors and ingredients. And, and just, I, I think because that is how we tackle things is, you know, I think our, our discovery in doing this book is that, we kept coming back to, oh, love, you know, basil and onions and love, you know, umeboshi and red meat or, or whatever it is. So kind of just, um, you know, maybe something that kind of has a lot looser, you know, constraints on, on how to make things and, and allow people to kind of toy around and come up with their own ideas. Into it. Jeremiah Stone and Fabian Benhosk, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Here's Anna interviewing chef and cookbook author Sohee Kim at Books Are Magic in Brooklyn. So thank you all for coming. Thank you, Sohee. Thank you. We're talking about Sohee's new cookbook, Korean Home Cooking. One of the things I'm so excited about this book is that Insa, a restaurant I love in Brooklyn, is so homey and welcoming, and I think there's such a home cooking feel to it. I'm curious to know... In this cookbook, how what is the overlap between the the items on the menu at 
Insa and kind of like what you cook at home? Mm. So um, when I uh, set out to write this cookbook, I, I really wanted to focus on obviously the, the home cooking aspect. Um, we did sort of toy with the idea of maybe making it based on sort of the entire restaurant and, and, and the menu that we have there. Um, but in the end, you know, I wanted the, the focus that I wanted it to take was on banchan. And I don't know if you guys know what that is. And that's the delectable side dishes that you get when you go into any sort of Korean restaurant. And it could be just one, you know, uh, pickled cabbage kimchi or, you know, it runs the gamut. Right. Um, so I wanted to focus more on banchan, which I feel is the soul of uh, Korean cooking. So um, it does have a lot of Insa recipes for sure. Um, but the book starts with banchan and that takes about half the book, I think. Um, so it's very uh, side, you know, vegetables and, and banchan forward. And then we get into all the favorites, right? People love mandu, the dumplings, and of course the, the fried chicken and all the other things that are, are big sellers at the restaurant. But um, in terms of focus, it is about what is um, mostly possible for home cooks to tackle. Um, and I think that banchan is a really good sort of introduction to um, Korean cooking. And also, it, um, there, you know, a lot of people's perceptions of Korean food right now, I feel like um, it is very sort of Korean fried-centric and sort of late-night food um, you know, types of dishes, which are great. And, and I don't knock any of them. And in fact, you know, they're mostly in this cookbook. But I think that uh, a lot of people don't know about um, how to make banchan, how to approach it. And, uh, and hopefully this book sort of breaks it down um, and makes it really simple and approachable for people. I love going to Insa because I feel like every time I go, even if I order the same exact thing, I'm always try I'm always introduced to something new because the banchan is always changing. How often do you change your banchan menu? So whenever so we work very closely with a couple of vendors, a couple of farms, and one in particular, um, I love this farmer. She she and I go way back and in my um my first cookbook we, we sort of dedicate a little um uh, a part on on our relationship and 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 how we have been working together for a really long time. She she cooked um, at uh, at the Good Fork, you know, for a little while, and and she went into farming, and now she provides for both restaurants. So whatever she is um, planting, and and we talk about even the seeds, you know, year prior, we talk about seed catalogs and what she could um, grow for me specifically. Um, and so in the summertime and especially fall, you know, we're just getting a ton of her gorgeous produce and we're just, you know, racking our brains to what could we kimchi, what could we pickle, what could we, you know, make into namul and all these other things that we talk about, I talk about in the cookbook. So that she's definitely an inspiration. And also... It's sometimes, you know, it's basically classic and sort of a modern take on things. So I do want to, just like, just like the menu at Inside, I do want to keep it very traditional and authentic tasting. But there's so much that you could do um, thinking outside of the box. So, yeah, a, a lot of sort of inspiration and, and, you know, basically what I feel like eating <laughs> that week. <laughs> What's the craziest, like totally out of left field banchan you've tried? Especially working with this farmer. Uh, okay, so Perilla. 
Uh, it's basically a weed. Do you guys know what that is? It's sort of a cousin to shiso. It's a green leaf, and we have a picture in there. Um, we, she had an abundance of it, and I said, just, you know, cut it all down. It's ready to go to seed, so just give it all to me. And, like, three people in the kitchen were just, you know, picking leaves off this bush, basically, and we made a, a, a soy-based kimchi, and it's one of my favorites. And when we do offer it to customers, they don't quite know how to approach it, and I think that's sort of the, you know, it's sort of a test. It's sort of a litmus test, you know, at the restaurant when I make a specific banchan, whether it's going to be a hit or not um some people do really love the flavor but i think that you know kimchi um you know chiso is kind of is sort of a far-fetched thing for some people it's a lot of strong flavor it is it's a like lot bitter of and kind of yeah. like minty and refreshing yeah. but also the spicy savory yeah exactly so so she also had now green tomatoes right before before it gets too cold she's harvesting all of them and uh, i pickled a whole bunch and today, actually, this is the banchan of the day uh, at Insa. Um, I took the pickled green tomatoes and I took the kimchi perilla um, and I sort of tossed it together with a little sesame oil and some sesame seeds and it balanced out. So it wasn't as strong. It was a little rounded out um, and much more palatable, I think. Uh, but I don't actually think too much about like what people what is easy for people to eat. Um, I think that uh, we have a lot of challenge, you know, we have a lot of, uh, I mean, it's a city full of foodies, right? So I think people want to be challenged and, and, and uh, push the envelope just a little bit. Um, I will stop as, right before, I think, raw pickled crabs, which is one of Ooh. the recipes in there. Um, it's soy marinated crabs, and it's basically you're pickling it, you're not cooking it at all, so it's sort of pickled, and in and, and some regions of Korea, they even ferment it. So that, I, I would say, no. We're, I'm not going to serve that as banchan. No. I do love, <laughs> I mean, banchan is such a cool opportunity to try new things, though, because it's kind of, it's like coming to the table automatically. Right. The diner doesn't have to make a decision about it. Right. And so it's, it's and like you're the hungry. Yeah, yeah you're, it's the hungriest part of the meal when you first sit down. Right. It's a great time to be adventurous and try. It is. It's a great, you know, um, sometimes I joke that the Korean banchan, like when you go to a Korean restaurant and they sort of give it to you gratis, free, um, you just have to. Like, you can't turn it away. You have to try mm -hmm. it. And my husband sometimes calls it the sort of the, you know, Far East Asian original chef's tasting menu, right? To, for 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 us, you know, for cooks to sort of um, put forth what is seasonal, you know, what is great, and 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 you, uh, we also think about textural difference, like color, texture, something soy pickle, something spicy, something a little sweet, because it has to be. It's a balanced cuisine, um, and and we play around with all those flavors. Um, so yeah, it 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 really is sort of the ultimate gift, you know, from a cook saying, hey, here's some five crazy dishes. Try it before your dumpling comes. <laughs> when you cook at home, how many banchan do you usually include? Like, what's a, what's a healthy variety to have? Um, well, I... So, okay, so let's talk about, I think, sort of the essence of Korean home cooking and, and, and how Korean people eat at home. Um, it really is about the banchan, right? So... Uh, uh, sort of a proud Korean cook in her or his refrigerator will have definitely a kimchi in there, right? And something that is 
Um, I don't know if you guys ever tried it. It's definitely in here. It's called um, cuttlefish spicy squid. It's basically dried and it's sort of stripped. And you get it that way, and all you have to do is season it. That will keep for several weeks in your refrigerator because there's nothing perishable. It won't churn. It's already a preserved item. Um, something like that. And then you will have the section called namul, which is sort of the seasonal fresh vegetables, Swiss chard, watercress, spinach, whatever you have. And that obviously should be eaten, you know, in a day or two. Um, so you just want to have a lot of different um, variety. And once you make it, it's sort of a Sunday supper, sort of, you know, making it for the week, right? So what I do is, it's not always Sunday, but I sort of devote one day to, to making a variety of banchan, keeping in the refrigerator. And uh, the other Korean essential is that rice cooker, that is always on. <laughs> so all you have to do is, you know, um, take a little bit of, of the rice that is yours to have, and then the banchan is, is up for grabs, and, and that's where the sharing happens. Um, and, of course, the, the soup and stew that, is, um, that has to go with the rice. So it really is rice, soup, banchan. That, I would say, is a, a very typical Korean uh, table. What's the best rice cooker? Gonna put you on the spot. Oh gosh, uh, <laughs> you know, honestly, right now I don't have a rice cooker because they're all broke. I got the Elephant brand. I think it's a Japanese brand. They're pretty reliable, but they're not. They're not cheap. Oh, Zoji Rushi. So, that's it. The, that's yeah. the one. Yeah. And then, um, and then, of course, you know, there are some Korean companies that make it with all the bells and whistles, and it's all computerized. It's too high tech for me. So this is what I do. I honestly. In the book, I show you how to make <laughs> cook rice using a method that my grandmother taught me, which is to st stick your clean hand in there and to measure it by where your knuckles are. And I know everybody has you know, different size hands, but it's sort of an intuitive thing that I, I have sort of um, learned. And it's something that even in the professional kitchens that, that I have, I teach my cooks that way. Um, so I make a pot, and then I sort of keep it in the refrigerator and just warm it up as, as I need. Um, because not every day you want not every not every because Koreans eat rice for pretty much every meal and that's not how how we do it in Brooklyn. That's true. <laughs> what are the other other than marinated and fermented crab? What are the other dishes in the book that you just will probably never see on one of your restaurant menus that never? are really really home cooking centric mm. or so, sort of comfort food? Right. So I, there's some I think soups that that um, like the seaweed soup. To me, I, we dub it the birthday soup because when, whenever you turn another year older, that's what your shoot have. You know, sort of like having a birthday cake, right? Equivalent of that. Not that it's too simple, but I think that it is something if people aren't used to it, they don't really know to order it. Tell There's, us about the birthday soup. So, what is it? So it's so it's seaweed basically, um, and uh, it's seaweed. Um, Wakame is a sort of the Japanese version that once you soak it, it becomes like paper, really soft and very delicate. And then you, you could put anything in it, really, but I like to flavor it with a little piece of beef, saute that first. Um, and then you, it's, it's just beef, water, garlic, um, the seaweed, and then a little bit of soy sauce and fish sauce. That's it. Very, very simple. Um, but soulful. And it is, you, I mean, I don't think you would find this soup. I mean, you can some places, like way out there in Flushing or way over there in New Jersey, but it's not something that you find too, too common because in restaurants because it's, it's definitely a home 
you know, homey dish, homey soup. And there's another one using dried pollock. Um, you know, we Koreans are big on dried things, and then and, and that has to do with preservation, right? Just like kimchi is a big art form, you know, derived from the the, nece- the necessity of preserving food through the winter. Um, at the harvest season, you would dry all kinds of things. We don't waste the thing. That's my mom. Um, so radish tops, you know. Um, even even sweet potato vines, you know, you would peel it and you would dry it. Um, so everything is about preservation. Um, what are sweet potato vines? So like? sweet, what do they taste like? So you have to peel it and then you chop it up. You peel it and then inside the core of the vine is just very sweet. And you know when you when you look at the history of Korea, it's a country that suffered greatly, right? Mid-century, um, with the Korean War and and you know the Japanese occupation, and and so it is definitely a culture historically that is about like talk about like nose to tail, you know, root to tip. It's we don't waste a thing, and that's something that as a professional cook, I I do appreciate that you 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 don't waste anything. Um, so yeah, you find ways to to find um, the deliciousness in something that one might just compost or throw it away. And, um, and, and I talk about that a little bit in the book as well. Being a chef, you must be so burnt out at the end of the day and <laughs> so tired of cooking at the end of the day. Do you cook at home? I'm, Do you I'm, have any energy to mm, cook at, at home on your days off? Or are you just like excited to like go to Taco <laughs> Bell? <laughs> No, never excited to go to Taco Bell, but... <laughs> All right, but. Or, or insert chain restaurant. All right, days. well, like, I don't know, uh, Shake Shack or something. Yeah, I, yeah, um, I, I do, It is exhausting when you do deal with food all day, um, but that's my passion, that's, that's my job. And it is tiring, but I have to shift gears because cooking at a restaurant and cooking at home is so different. Um, and I have two little picky eaters at home. And so I, I usually have, um, I'm smart about stocking things that they will eat. Um, and they don't eat complicated foods at all. And I, you know, I did test these recipes over and over and over again at home, and other friends did too. And they would try a little bit of this or a little bit of that and say, oh, yeah, that's good. And then, oh, you want a plate of it? And, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> Mac and cheese. That's very or polite, Or They're very that's polite. very polite I, my, uh, The rule is you have to try it, right? You just have to. You don't have to like it, but you have to try it. I want to know what are, what are the recipes in this book that your kids approve of? Uh, the dumplings. Okay. Um, I pack that in their lunch, and and I think they sort of brag about it, and they trade dumplings for I don't know Twizzlers or things, or I don't know love what they that. do. The new economy. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so they love the dumplings, obviously. Although Oliver, my youngest son, he's like my youngest, is it's like, mm, yeah, maybe not today, dumplings. So I know they're sort of reaching the max with that. Um, they love. I see. I included some dishes in. There there that they that I cook for them specifically there's a very simple uh, breaded chicken cutlet recipe in there and that is really um for them you know and I make that I would say at least once a week um there's there's a uh, noodle soup um they they eat the seaweed soup they love all the soup because it's very mild and it's not very strong flavors and it's very warming and um, very savory. So they do they do like that. The braised short ribs, they like the purgogi for sure. They like all the stuff that all the customers like at Insa. 
Oh, yeah. wow. So they're, they're kind of a good <laughs> testing ground they are. for new dishes. They are. But, you know, it is. It is uh, I did want to go beyond bulgogi and Korean fried chicken in here um, and push it, push it this way and also this way in terms of, you know, really exploring what Korean home cooking is and then also pushing the limits of, like, okay, if you're a really adventurous eater and a cook at home, how about you try to make, you know, homemade spam, for instance. Um, so I have a solid recipe in there for that. Um, Korean blood sausage, have you guys ever tried that? No, so because it's not everywhere, and, and you would have to seek it out at I've restaurants. I've had it at INSA. That's You've had I've it had at it. INSA, yeah. And, um, and Pete Wells wrote about it when he, when he gave us a really nice review uh, when we opened, and I couldn't believe that he wrote about it. And I said, this is surefire way how we sell it. If he writes about it, we can. So it's not the number one seller, but people try it, and they're very, very surprised um, that we even have a tradition of making Korean blood sausage. Hopefully, it encompasses a lot um, of recipes for you know various types of home cooks. Um, and I think the photos are just, you know, that was very important for me to have a, a photograph for every single um, recipe because it is so new. And, and Korean cuisine, I think, is just sort of catching up with um, Japanese or Chinese, Vietnamese, you know. We're sort of lagging behind a little bit so that, you know, hopefully there's uh, something for everybody in there and that it's a good representation of how, how Koreans eat. I need to be sold a little bit on making my own spam because spam from a can, honestly, is really good. Like they have, they Listen, literally have it down yeah. to a science. It's not knocking it Tell me at about all. That. I mean, yeah. I grew up with that can. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? I, it's, uh, Do you still buy the cans? No, I don't. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> all right. So I'm not, I'm not New York chef snobs like, well, I make my own spam. <laughs> um, no, I do appreciate it, and I think it's good, but, but we could certainly, you know, it's a challenge, I think, for, for professionals to, to take on something sort of nostalgic and historic and kooky like spam. Did you know Korea is like the third largest consumer of spam in this world? I didn't. Yeah, next to the Philippines and Hawaii. Wow. Yeah, and that has to do with the presence of the U.S. Um, military there. But, but yeah, no, my whole entire um, childhood was about, not entire, but, uh, you know, talk about the Korean table, the steamed eggs, the seaweed soup, you know, the broiled fish, all that stuff was expected on, on our dinner table um, at home. But every once in a while, my mother would open up the can, and you know how you open it up with that little key, mm -hmm. and then you pop it open. Yeah, and there's um, some and juice that comes the out. juice, and then you yeah. just plop, plop, plop onto you, <laughs> and then you, they, she would slice it um, into these rectangular pieces and dip it. There's a section on jeon, which is sort of fritter section. And so, you know, flour, and then egg, and then she would pan fry, and that would be one of the banchan. And I didn't get it at all, and I was like, what is this <laughs> Stuff. And I, so, so I, I have to fess up. When I was young, I was a, I was an incredibly picky eater. Um, so I didn't eat much at all. And my my grandmother had to wash the kimchi off in water for me. I know it's really oh. ironic. My sisters and my brother just love the fact that I cook for a living now, and I like make my own spam. Like I wouldn't touch it with a ten foot pole when I was five. <laughs> I love the idea of rinsed kimchi oh yeah it's a thing it's like a, a limp thing. soggy it's a rinse it's a thing and all you do it's the, so if you rinse out all the seasoning and the deliciousness right yeah all it is is just 
yucky cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> it's still fermented. It's still fermented, and still, but it's you just wash it. And I would say just leave it in there for 10 minutes and then rinse it off, and I would put it on my rice. Terrible, terrible. So that's why I have two little picky ones, and I understand. I get it. <laughs> and hopefully they won't be stuck in that rut, and I think, I think they won't be. Before you opened Inza, you were obviously cooking for the Good Fork, mm-hmm. and your last cookbook was the Good Fork cookbook. Mm-hmm. What are the big differences between that cookbook and this cookbook? Well, that cookbook um, came out of this notion of survival. Um, you know, as you guys know, it's a pretty tough climate. Um, restaurant industry is in New York City um, and we had reached the 10th uh, year anniversary around the time when the book came out but but I sort of got in my head when we were um, hit with uh, Hurricane Sandy and Red Hook was sort of under and we had to rebuild and there was a part of me saying oh you know even if we go out this way you know no one will remember the good fork and you know, I saw my recipe book sort of floating as we were, you know, it, it's, it's sort of a sad story, but that's where I got in my head, like, this has to be documented. You know, the fact that, you know, we're here in this little part of Brooklyn, and, and it would be great to, to um, you know, have a, have a cookbook to sort of, you know, to live on, right, if the restaurant doesn't make it. And, uh, and we hooked up with a wonderful publisher and a fabulous editor, Holly, who's here, and, and she got it immediately. Um, so it's a little story about a, a little restaurant um, with some, I think, amazing recipes that we have developed over the years. Um, and uh, very proud of it, but it's a, it's a restaurant cookbook, whereas this one is a bit more, you know, educational, um, step-by-step introduction um, for people who aren't very familiar with home Korean cooking. Um, so definitely very, very different in nature and uh, different in feel, um, even though the photographers, the, um, I use the same photographers who are amazing, Booz and Zach, um, and, they, and, and I said it was very important for it to be very visual. Um, so I think that's the, that's the approach that we took um, in, in, in making it uh, come alive, um, that it's different in feel and also different um, in approach. You talk so much about the Korean pantry in mm-hmm. this book and kind of like how to build that up if you don't have a pantry of those ingredients. Mm-hmm. Where are your favorite places to grocery shop in New York? Well, I think H Mart has sort of taken over the Korean. Um, <laughs> they're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that's a great thing. Has um, anyone here been to H Mart? No, it's yeah, great. It's, it's on so 32nd fun. Street. It's great. There's bigger ones in New Jersey, and there's one in Westchester. They're all over. And um, and I really uh, love the fact that you could just get just about anything there. And they're online. You could order it. So it's not... You know, I do mention how, you you know, if you're going to cook Indian food or Korean food, you have to have the pantry for it. But what I think uh, Korean food is different in that it's a very small list. It's a very a concise list. And if you have the basics, you know, the soybean paste, the chili powder, the, the, the chili paste, sesame seeds, rice wine vinegar, but um, rice wine, stuff like that you guys have in your pantry anyway. So it's not, it doesn't take a whole lot to build up the pantry, but once you have it, um, you could cook, you know, whatever you want out of this book. And also really fortify your other things that you make, you know what I mean? A, a little bit of uh, soybean paste, 
you know, in a braise or a chili paste in the braise. I mean, it just goes a long way, and you don't even have to tell anybody that you use it. It's just, you know, it's it's an umami sort of. It's it's um, there's some powerful tools, and I think whether you cook Korean food or not, you should have it in your pantry. Yeah, there are. I have to take you to task about something, which is that you have in your dessert chapter a recipe for a tomato salad Mm -hmm. with onions. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us us about uh, tomatoes for dessert. Are tomatoes dessert food is the question. Yes. Yes. Tomatoes are absolutely... It's a fruit, right, guys? It's a fruit. And and this... So the, the dessert chapter is not long. Um, I am not a pastry chef, but I do I do love sweet things just to sort of, you know, as a palate cleanser, and that's how um, Korean uh, cuisine is really about. Um, it, it's about so when I you know there was a lot of soul searching and going back. Um, I I grew up in Korea and I left when I was ten, um, and so there was a lot of going back into like what was really on that table you know years and years ago when we celebrated a graduation or regular dinners or what have you, and I remember that um, in the summertime we grew tomatoes and sweet as can be. My mother, after dinner, would just slice them open, very juicy, and sprinkle simply a little sugar and a little salt just to bring out the flavor. Um, and then I would sneak a little extra sugar on there. But it really, it's, it's a piece of fruit that really is delicious at the height and the peak, you know, of growing season. So that was, that's where that came from. And then I embellished it a little bit by, um, by adding the tofu cream and and some of the onions and i know onions aren't desserty but but it's look, kind of but it's I but get it's it. refreshing it's like you know how the italians right the europeans they eat the salad after their meal as a palate cleanser and i think when you approach that dish you have to sort of think think about it that way and you could still have something chocolatey or sweet after that tomato salad <laughs> So you're saying you're allowed to have dessert after the That's right. tomato dessert. That's right. Or you could just stop there, you know. Um, but it, it is, again, it's, it's about introducing something that is not familiar um, and, and sort of putting it in context of, you know, how a culture or how a people um, deal with various ingredients and, and, and sweet stuff. Um, yeah, there's some crazy stuff in that section, I know. <laughs> I also love, uh, in the drink section, you tell people to cut open a cantaloupe, mm-hmm. scoop it out, fill it with soju. Mm-hmm. That's right. So so this is a thing. If you go to Koreatown, you do a late night thing. Um, watermelon. Watermelons, right? right. They just hollow it out, and then they blend it with soju. And, uh, and this was a way for us to sort of show off the fact that at INSA, we get our soju distilled for us by, um, by our friends at Van Brunt Stillhouse that's based in Red Hook. Um, and so it's, it's just that. It's a play on the watermelon soju bombs. Um, and how did that come about? So Toki is mm-hmm. the soju Brandy. that's uh, made in Brooklyn, that's right? right. How, did, how did a soju creator start up in Brooklyn, and how did you start collaborating with them? Right, so, so Brandon Hill... Um, is his name, and he founded Toki Soju. And he, before he founded Toki, he worked at Van Brunt Stillhouse. And so Toki Soju and Van Brunt Stillhouse Insa Soju is very similar, but not the same. Um, 
and he could go into sort of specifics of how they're different, but they're dif- they're made in the traditional way that he learned how. He um, is an American gentleman who spent a lot of time in Korea modeling, oh. which I didn't know. Um, very handsome dude. And, and when, <laughs> when he was in Korea, he was fascinated with makgeolli, which is the, um, the cloudy um, rice drink, right? And, uh, and he, sort of, he sort of forged ahead in finding a um, person who was willing to teach him how to make that in a very traditional way. And then he learned, he graduated to, to make how to make soju. And we all know what comes in the green bottle, right? That's like really inexpensive. And that's what you do when you do karaoke shots of, of chamisol. That stuff is fine, but it does, it is chock filled with chemicals and things that you don't it doesn't it doesn't make you feel good the next day so so brandon has come up with uh with the recipe of making soju and we and we i talked to him years before you know we actually opened the doors to insa so i was like you have to make us our own soju and he was so thrilled at the challenge um so we sell everything we sell the green stuff we sell you know the insa soju um and uh, but he does a wonderful job Speaking of karaoke, how did you decide to have karaoke rooms at your restaurant? Do right. you love karaoke? No. <laughs> I don't. Okay. And that, and that was my the brilliant idea of my husband, Ben okay. Schneider. He is my partner, both places. He designed and built both places. Um, and... Uh, and we wanted to open Insta because there's not a place like it in Brooklyn, especially in the Gowanus area. So I thought that it would, you know, the, the market's there, you know, the need is there and the want is there. I wanted it there. You know, I, I didn't want to schlep into flushing, you know, for the ultimate sort of Korean barbecue experience. So it was decided that we would have barbecue tables at this large space and he would design it. He would get the bar. He could created however kooky way he wanted um and and i said i just want the dining room very sleek and neat and my only request was that i don't have those overhead ducts that come down which are sort of design eyesores so we invested heavily in the in this downdraft um, barbecue tables which works out fabulous for us so we had it all sort of laid out and then one day he wakes up saying karaoke and i said what (laughs) And because we signed the lease to this really large space, he thought that we could make private karaoke rooms in the back and he would have fun building it out. He's a builder at heart, and that's what he does. So it was really his vision of sort of wanting to make it the complete Korean experience. He's like, it'd be great. It's the bar. You have soju there, and then you, you have this wonderful barbecue meal. You grill at the table, and then you, like, retire to the, <laughs> to the yeah, back room. Yeah, perfect night It out. actually is. It's brilliant. It is brilliant. But I did poo-poo the idea because I felt like the, the food wasn't going to be taken too seriously. But... Um, but that's not the Pete case. Wells came and then by. Pete Wells came by, and so How it was all right. How did the walls of the karaoke rooms come to be covered in plastic foliage? So that's he's kooky. I my love husband. That. He he's a dumpster diver. He loves all things old. Um, he, my my house. I can't even tell you. It bird bird whatever he finds he he finds. So he thought it'd be a great idea to have different theme room, which is a wonderful idea. So the green moss um, astroturf room you're talking about is the actually the jungle room. Um, 
because obviously we can't have everything live in there. So there's a jungle room, there's an ocean room, there's a deep space room, there's a psychedelic room, and, and we put a lot of tchotchkes in there, but they all get sw- stolen. Oh, that's so <laughs> there's sad. There's la- great lava lamps in the psychedelic room, but they're all gone. <laughs> oh, that's awful. It's okay. It's your fine. kids must love the karaoke rooms. They do. Do your kids do karaoke ever? They do. They do. They what are their go-to songs? They sing a lot of, uh, a lot of like um, Taylor Swift. Sure. Um, dragons, something about dragons. Imagine dragons. Um, and like, and we, you know, Ben has taught Oliver to sing some Elvis Presley blue suede shoes. Oh, and, that's yeah. really and great. And I, I taught my daughter how to sing uh, um, True Colors by Cindy Lauper. Yeah, so we sing and it's fun. Oh, that's great. Yeah. We can we have a little time for questions from the audience, but before that, I just wanted to ask if there's one recipe in this book that you really want people to go home and cook this weekend, what's the one that you really want people to pay attention to? I think it is the the obvious one, which is kimchi. I think that kimchi is so easy to make at home. All you have to do is just get one or two Napa cabbages and you have it in your refrigerator. And I think I talk to a lot of my friends and like, how do you make it? It just seems so daunting. And I, so I think there's like this mental block, like I can't make anything fermenting because it's just too hard. And it's not at all. So People have been doing it for hundreds of for, years. For thousands, hundreds of years. Um, so it's, it is... Uh, it is, it's, it's the national dish of Korea that you should try. And it's very simple. And it's step-by-step step in here. Thank you, Sohi. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. This was really fun. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.